Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis. It's December. We're still going strong on media and marketing breaking news. So joining us to discuss some of those from this week is managing editor Olivia Crimmel. Hi, Damien. And reporter Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, Zoe will be speaking to special groups Cade Hayde and Lindsay Evans about opening in Melbourne and the US. Man, it was hard starting a business the first time. Why have we started two more? The rise of independence. It's not really about whether it's independence or network tone, but I think it's how you're able to respond to change, how you're able to respond to opportunities. And the creative process while working from home. Participating or working just on Zoom, after a while, becomes really transactional. But first, this week's major topics. WPPAUNZ becomes a subject of a takeover bid from WPPPLC. And all change at CHE proximity as Chris Howitson and Ant White depart. Monday began with a bang as WPPPLC made a bid to take over WPPAUNZ via an unsolicited proposal to acquire all of the ordinary shares in the local arm that it does not already own. It offered a cash price of 0.55 cents per share, which was 0.16 cents above the listed price at the time. WPPPLC currently owns 61.5% of WPPAUNZ, with the remaining shares owned by a variety of parties. The current share price as of Thursday, December 3, was 56 cents. But let's move on from all the share stats. This would be a significant move that would bring WPPAUNZ completely in line with WPPPLC. Damien, was the industry expecting this news? Yeah, great question, Olivia. Was it expecting the news? I don't think it was expecting the news straight away, but I'm not sure that we weren't expecting it at some stage. It seems to make a lot of sense. Uh, it just came probably a bit quicker than anyone else thought it might. Look, Jens Monsees has already been looking to create efficiencies to uh, merge agencies in with each other to change the way WPPAUNZ operates, and that's just not WPPAUNZ. That goes for WPPPLC uh, as well, and a number of other groups uh, worldwide also. This is the era of uh, making efficiencies, looking at mergers, looking at acquisitions, and looking at the way that agencies can change the way that they're doing business. And No one I spoke to in market seemed shocked by this announcement, just maybe the timing was a bit earlier than than we all thought, and it, it certainly hit quite soon. Zoe, you've got a lot of contacts in, in the industry as well. What were you hearing? I wasn't surprised by this news. I think um, after the merger of with STW that went through in 2017, there's been a lot of Australian brands that have joined in with WPPAUNZ. I mean, the biggest one we would know, like we know is – the white agency, which was an STW brand merging with Grey. When actually that was announced, when Grey was announced to be merging with AKQA on a global level, I mean, we had to approach that differently because WPPAUNZ, slightly different business, and we didn't know what the local implication of that was going to be because of the white element in that agency. But when that came through, I got a sense that perhaps – there was not the greatest lines of communication between 
WPP and WPPAUNZ because as far as we know at, at the time of recording, the leadership structure for the new AKQA group in Australia has not been determined. And when I when I reported on the merger being announced, WPPAUNZ CEO Jens Monsees said, like, we think this is a great opportunity. Um, it's a great opportunity for clients. The clients are no, but we're still sorting out what that's going to look like. And that seemed quite strange to me that on a global level, like they had it all organized and then here it wasn't. So it make that makes me a little bit suspicious going into this takeover bid, like what the channels of communication are. And it also makes me wonder about if if this takeover bid comes through, what what the future is for Jens Monsees. Yeah, that's a really good question, what the future is from, for Jens Monsees. Let me go back to what Olivia was saying at the start in terms of the share prices. And here's what uh, I know in terms of Jens Monsees' performance, if you look strictly at what we're seeing from the ASX. He started late last year. In the time that he was there prior to COVID, there was a share price increase. And it wasn't uh, unsubstantial either. There was a decent share price increase where he got into the 60 cent mark. So there's a belief in market clearly that what he's doing is is good. Maybe you could argue we haven't necessarily seen result after result after result, but there is definitely a belief in market that what he's doing is good. Obviously, COVID then hits, share price drops down to about 20 cents. But again, since then, we've seen an increase and it's gone back up to or had gone up to 40, uh, 41 cents, I believe it was, before this uh, proposition came from WPPPLC to do a takeover. And again, it's jumped. So whenever Yens gets a clear run, the share price does go up. Yeah. And we know that the transformation plan that he introduced earlier this year was in line with the plan that WPP was employing globally in terms of like the reduction in brands and putting the service offerings and opportunities for clients first. I mean, one thing that does come to mind while streamlining the business is the priority taking over WPPAUNZ and matching it with the global structure makes sense. I mean, you can't have this kind of entity out here, Australia and New Zealand, that's in a way kind of doing its own thing. And also, I mean, as we know, Jens has made a bit of noise in the Australian press. So it wouldn't surprise me, not negative noise, that's, that is to say, but, you know, he's attracted a lot of attention to the business in the Australian and New Zealand press. So it it makes sense for them to look at taking full control of this business. Yeah, look, I think it's too early realistically to be speaking about what's next for Yens. Let's see what's next for WPPAUNZ first. Uh, and then we'll move on to that. But what are the next steps? Look, from the press release that got sent through, the next steps are that independent directors of WPPAUNZ, along with advisors, they're going to consider the proposal. Shareholders are advised to take no action in relation to WPPPLC's proposal until they receive the independent director's formal recommendations. This is all the stock standard stuff. Uh, and WPPAUNZ uh, will update shareholders in accordance with the company's continuous disclosure obligations, blah, 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 in due course. So pretty standard stuff. I don't think we'll hear anything uh, prior to Christmas. But uh, again, in terms of Jens Monsees, I think it's a bit early to be speculating about him, but I would suggest that he's 
probably put in a, a pretty solid performance to this stage. And next, stay tuned for New Shop, Howitson and White as CHE proximity leaders move on. The revolving doors of agency land turned even more frantically this week when one of Adland's most successful leaders announced his resignation. CHE Proximity CEO Chris Howitson will leave the agency in February next year, as will Chief Creative Officer Ant White. Howitson in particular has been credited with building the agency into one of the leading shops in Australia, winning multiple Mumbrella Awards, among other things. White joined the agency in 2016. Damien, you were all over this on Monday. Is this the end of CHE Proximity's success? Yeah, that was an absolutely crazy day on Monday because, of course, that did follow the WPEP announcement in the morning. Uh, is this the end of CHE Proximity's success? Look, I, I don't think so. Is it the start of a little bit of change for CHE Proximity? Much more than a little bit of change, clearly. Uh this is a really interesting prospect that we have here. You mentioned the multiple Mumbrella Awards. Let's talk about the success of what we affectionately call CHEP. Uh, I, I got uh, our researcher, Anna, to, to have a little bit of a dig into the Mumbrella Awards. And by her count, over the last few years, I think from 2017, they had won 12 Mumbrella Awards and some of the bigger awards as well, the various Agency of the Year Awards. Chris Howitson, he started in this position as CEO when he was 27. Uh, that was 2012, I believe. He's built it from what was reported to, to be an, an $8 million revenue agency to now an $80 million revenue agency. That's huge. What he's done with CHEP is uh, a really unique and successful thing. And him, as well as Ant White departing, is going to make a major change for for Clemenger Group, obviously their lead brands, Clemenger, BBDO and uh, CHEP. How is that going to shake out? It's going to be very interesting to see. The The most interesting thing is here's what we know. Howitson and White as an agency going to start next year in February, which doesn't leave a lot of time between this happening. But Zoe, what have you been hearing? Personally, I wouldn't be surprised if this announcement uh, does create a little bit of shakiness for clients. I mean, we know that Chris Howitson is a massive draw card in the pitch process for clients. When he's in the room, people pay attention. And so I would not be surprised if there's a little bit of uncertainty for clients. And obviously that would be the agency's first priority is attacking like the retention of these clients. I mean, we also know that if as they are leaving, they cannot take clients with them for a certain period of time. That's just the way that like contracts work out in any industry, not just this one. But I I would have my eye on some of Chep's clients appearing on the Howitson and White client list in the future. So I had the benefit of talking to both Chris Howitson and Robert Morgan recently, and they both seem to be in really good spirits despite the speed at which this broke on Monday. We broke the story around early afternoon, I think it was 1 or, 1 or 2 p.m., and that was ahead of the announcement that went out to the staff with a few more details, including Ant White leaving, including the name of the, the agency. 
So there was a lot going on uh, across multiple platforms there and, and ahead of the agency. But like I say, Robert seems to be in very good spirits. Chris seemed to be in very good spirits as well. They both got their plans. They both know what they're doing despite the fact that this is all happening pretty quickly. We're going from go to woe from December to February for, for both of them here. But towards the end of the year, I don't think we'll hear too much more from, from either of them in terms of new CEO announcement for CHEP, for example, uh, any new announcements from Howitson and White. Uh, but it'll be really interesting to see come the end of February what's going on in market, particularly with CHEP and perhaps largely, uh, perhaps on a larger stage, the Clemenger Group, but also how uh, Chris and Anta are setting up Howitson and White as well. What's interesting about this to me is the fracturing of the creative landscape that we've seen over the last 12 months. I mean, we've talked a lot about the rise of independence and how it's a great opportunity for independence as nibble partners. But I mean, you can't look past some of these big names like leaving their agencies and heritage agencies, I mean, and starting up their own shops. I mean, there's Aiden Hepburn with Accelo. There's Craig Brooks and Joel Pearson from RGA leaving together and starting up Not Bad Pretty Good. Bear Meets Eagle on Fire, the creative shop from Michael Walker, that's like gaining a lot of momentum. So I don't think they will be the last big names in the industry to leave in the near future and start up their own business because it – and I think that's going to be a trend that we'll be seeing for a while is just the way that agencies are breaking apart up next, Zoe talks to special groups Lindsay Evans and Cade Hayde. Joining me now on the Mumbrella cast are Lindsay Evans and Cade Hayde, the founding partners of Special Group Australia. Welcome to the Mumbrella cast. Hi, Zoe. Thank you for having us. Hi, Zoe. Thanks so much for inviting us on. It's been a huge year for you guys. And before I jump into the highs that you guys have reached this year, I want to take you back to March when everything was closing down around you. How quickly did you make that decision to send your staff home? And how was it leading a staff of an agency your size through such a period of uncertainty? Yeah, well, I mean, the first part of your question around how quickly did we send staff home, we were probably on the later scale um, relative to some of the the bigger agencies. And I think there's two reasons for that. One is um, our office is very large and so we've got a, a really big space for the number of people that we are. So we felt reasonably safe in the space that we had and, and people's ability to be COVID safe and social distance. The second is um, I think because we're independent, um, we didn't have to conform to any global um, uh, restrictions that sort of a lot of the networks had to um, implement across the board. So um, we're probably at the later later stage of um sending people home and we used our time in the lead up to that fairly wisely in terms of making sure that people had the IT support, the technology, um, that we found easy and quick ways to get people connected. Um, we use WhatsApp a lot 
um, and we set up some um, some regular updates and gave people regular communication around when we we're going to be reviewing um, our policies on on work from home. Yeah, and I think the other thing. Um... I guess, like most people, um, not knowing into the future, when all clients pretty much press the pause button for for varying lengths of of time or for different periods of time. Um, And at that point in time, we made the decision to sort of be cautious and um, fortunately we didn't have to lose anybody, um, didn't lose any full-time employees, and we put put people over a certain salary bracket on a 20% pay cut. Um, and then we were really, really fast and being able to pay that back. Um, so, um, you know, protected everybody and then made sure that all the hard work and the hard yards and the energy and the commitment that went into, you know, really seeing us through the, the, the worst of it um, was, was rewarded back. And across the industry, everyone's been talking now about the rewards of flexible working, being able to work from home and what that will mean for uh, people living not just in central Sydney, but in the outer suburbs and also regionally. But for me, I've noticed that in the creative industry, it's quite different because a lot of people have said that the creative process isn't the same while everyone's just sitting on a Zoom call. How did you guys find that? Um, look, there's no doubt that there's a lot of benefits with both models and this is a live conversation in our organisation um, every day about what the future of work looks like. Um, I think where we're landing is that um, let's call it the old model, which was bound to desks and offices, has lots of positives, but there is a degree of inflexibility with how people manage the merging of their personal and home lives and, and their work lives. Um, and at the other extreme in what we've sort of experienced in the in the past six months, um, where it's completely untied to the office, again, there's lots of positives about people's flexibility. But the one thing that we're pretty passionate about is that um, there is an additional level of complexity and a degree of um, of everything feeling like a transaction when all business is done remotely. We're thinking we're going to land on a model or a blueprint which is a hybrid of the two that um, allows people to benefit from the flexibility of having some time to work wherever they want, but equally brings people together at the same time around um, either key days in the week, so there's some structure, or key projects and milestones and client meetings and pitch meetings to make sure that the value of the magic that comes from being in a room and, and sparking off each other isn't lost um, lost for good. The, 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 there's no doubt that um, participating or working just on Zoom after a while becomes really transactional. Um, yeah, I think it's just, you you know, you on the one hand, there's, you know, there's a newfound empathy and a newfound sort of, um, exposure to people's lives and 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 and, and, and almost um, more human connection, but when it's not in the physical space, after a while, you lose the the benefit of the the physical human connection. Um, and I think it, there's no doubt our culture, um, the culture that was created in a living space, is what carried us through the worst of those times. Um, and then I think gradually, you know, as the months go on, it's you know the batteries sort of 
are slightly draining and, and you've got to find ways to reinvest in main, maintaining and building and nurturing that culture. Um, I think, you know, creativity, I would say, didn't suffer. I think that was because of the circumstances. And I think, you know, I think how building a culture of creativity relies on human connection. It relies on on, on being able to um, have those moments of collaboration, have those corridor conversations, be able to read a room, you know, bounce off each other. Um, so, but yeah, as Kate says, there will definitely always be always be that in our in our world i think for the most part most people in our organization were craving um connection with people again and in fact even before we implemented any return to work um there was an unofficial thing called work from um work from the office wednesdays um where people had just proactively taken it upon themselves for the most part to sort of use that as an unofficial return to work day where they could connect and be around each other and go for lunch and so um you know everyone that we've spoken to in our organization um through a consultative uh process for the most part has enjoyed and has relished in in the return to office i think there's i talk about there's three sort of buckets of people there's the um the the people at the top the top end which are responsible for the output for creative um they tend to be more of the, the team lead, senior people in, in, in our organisation, and, and they were desperate for it because they, they know that they're, the, the product that they're responsible for is going to be, in the long run, better for being together. There's the, um, the younger guys and girls who are newer to the industry who actually, in, to some extent, felt like they were missing the opportunity to learn and to be a part of conversations that they otherwise wouldn't get to be a part if everything was done remotely. And then there's a small bracket in the middle which um, probably uh, enjoyed more of the, just the lifestyle benefits of not being there. But certainly um, at both ends of the spectrum, which is most of our organisation, people were, were desperate to get back to be together. And in the midst of you organising, sorting out this return to work situation in Sydney, you also opened up an office, so to speak, in Melbourne in the middle of their lockdown. What was that process like for you guys when you couldn't get down there yourselves? Um, yeah, I mean, we, we hired, we've hired a, a number of people um, through Zoom who we've not met face-to-face, um, not just um, in Melbourne. Um, we've won new business with clients that we have yeah, haven't met face to face and pitched, you know, pitched with, with brands and people we didn't know. Um, so I think everyone got pretty used to that, and you know, um, the physical presence didn't didn't actually become too much of a barrier. I think now it is like everybody's gagging to be able to get back in the room together and be in an office together in Melbourne. Um, we've just today signed um, on a space down there, which is exciting. Um, but it was a long time coming for us in Melbourne, and we obviously there's um, a, a good market with the scale and opportunity down there. Um, and I think brand owners looking for sort of less traditional agencies and ways of working. And but the truth be told, we were really driven by talent, and we were driven by the fact that Beck Stambanis, who's a rock star planner um, was coming back from the US after uh, seven or eight years working as global strategy director on Nike and, and then Apple. Um, she came back. We worked together in a previous life, um, and it was a no-brainer to, I guess, um, put her in the middle of something and build a world-class team around her, and knowing that that talent would unlock the opportunity. So, 
it was and that and she's been working with us for, for many months so um it's not um it, it, it didn't really seem like uh, a, a big thing <laughs> yeah um i i'll i call lindsay's most lindsay most weeks and and say, man, it was hard starting a business the first time. Why have we started two more in in the middle of a in, in, a, in the case of America? It's not only a, a social crisis, um, but also a, a health pandemic. And I think there's things we got wrong, and I think we'll, the things we will continue to get wrong at an operational level in both of those um, sort of side extra businesses. But I think the one thing that we've we've that, that like Lindsay said, that's led for the most part, our entry into other markets is around talent. And we've been so fortunate in both the States and and Melbourne to have, outside of the pandemic conditions, met people that um, we believe are subscribed to the values and the focus on culture that that we have in, in the Sydney and Auckland offices. And, and so I think when you get that bit right, the foundations of, yeah, we'll get some operational things wrong around how we work. And, but that's... I'm not sure there's a startup in any category that doesn't suffer from some of those teething problems, but the fundamentals of the the direction we're headed were were locked in firmly through the the people that we've chosen to go into business with. I mean, the US office was going to be my next question, and uh, you opened it off the back of your work with Uber Eats with tonight I'll be eating launching over there. How long had that been in the works for you guys, and was it? When, when COVID rolled around, I imagine it had been for like in the works for a long time when COVID rolled around. Was that a big, oh my God moment or did you just charge ahead anyway? Well, it's funny. We've been talking with the clients in the States for over a year, actually. We've been super lucky with that organize, with that group of people in that um, they've nurtured and protected us. And in many ways, we've grown as they have. Obviously, we've done some great work with them um, in APAC. Um, and there were a couple of opportunities where we, in fact, we spent a lot of time over there at the end of last year, Linz and I and, and some of the other partners, and participated in a pitch that actually we didn't win. Um, ironically, there was, I don't think, any winner because nothing progressed. But it was definitely the start of a, a, a long conversation around how we can partner with them to to um, in in the, in, the, in North America, um, so when the second opportunity came, which was again a pitch, it came at a time that probably because of the pandemic worked in our favour. Suddenly, the constraints of geography were no longer an issue. Suddenly, we weren't worried about how we're going to get on a plane and have FaceTime with these clients because they were all um, in their own lounge rooms and, and kitchens as well. Um, and I still think sometimes today, um, as as we run some meetings from from this office and others from the US office, uh, they forget where we are. Apart from the fact that sometimes we've got a light on and and they're having their morning coffee. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been a real journey. Um, it's been a privilege to to um, to be able to scale off the back of them. And I, I actually think as a as a group of clients, they've been super patient and um, act, always acted as great partners in being aware of where we are at as a business, but but identifying the thing that they wanted from us and helping us to scale that to to um, deliver in in many markets for them. 
Yeah. I think the other thing as well, I, you know, I think New, Ze- New Zealand, the New Zealand business was founded maybe 13 years ago. Kate and I um, jumped on board to, to look to open in Australia six years ago. Um, and the, their vision was always to try and build, the hope was always, and the dream was always to try and build a, a sort of mini micro network. Um, and I guess, so those plans had always been talked about. And actually we met William Gellner, who is the founding partner of the LA business. Maybe a year ago, we flew him out here last year. So he visited the Auckland office, the Sydney office. And so when this all happened, we were ready just to press go. Um, and he jumped on board knowing that we'd spent lots of great time with him and that, you know, he has, you know, the, the, not just the, I guess, the, the talent and the credibility to, to do that job, but, you know, really shared values and, you know, spent lots of time knowing, you know, what we were trying to build together and, and the ways of working that would, would get us there. So um, we were, yeah, that was fortuitous that we'd already um, met, met, met our man, so to speak. <laughs> Your point about how working life now with Zoom has sort of reduced the geographic constraints of what a business can do and and your point about how your the talent you've hired has set up the values and culture of your business in these markets you can't physically reach yet is quite interesting to me because I think the talent pool in Australia will change. I mean, you said you've you hired Rebecca, who is coming back to Australia from the states. How do you think it's it the talent will change in Australia now that people can't go and do their two years overseas, but there will also be a number of people coming back from that. I think I think COVID will have just gets everybody to sort of I guess question question I guess so many things that you know at human nature level and I think the whole flexible workplace will just bring a greater deal of diversity I don't think it will mean less I think we'll have we'll have find more flexible ways for people to work and be involved and get into this industry and hopefully it will mean that we can get people from different backgrounds different geographies different regions um, it just might mean that we have to operate slightly differently. But I, I think the I think our industry will will flourish and benefit from a greater diversity as a result of it, um, and a, greater, a, a more diverse talent pool as a result of it, uh, not a reduced one. I think as well for businesses like us, um, when we're, we're fairly small, we've sort of got what we would call a, a fixed resource pool, which are our full-timers, but we've got a pretty good network of Um, freelance talent across most um, departments in the agency that allow us to to grow around clients briefs and busy periods and and periods of of new business and and pitches and one thing we've always struggled a little bit uh, in the creative space particularly is is finding great freelance talent now there's definitely some out there in Australia but but when you look at markets like America where probably the top 10 or 15 or 20% of creative talent are actually have built a business out of being completely freelance and picking and choosing the projects, the brands and the agencies they want to work with. So I think we've, we've got this environment that's going to allow smaller creative agencies to tap into the, the best creative talent without having to make a big commitment on an ongoing salary. It also allows us to match our clients and our briefs more closely to the type of talent that's right for a particular project 
And we're already seeing that now in, in, in how um, our Sydney business and our US business works. We've got a US team that we came across as, as part of the Uber Eats projects that are working on a pitch for us in Australia um, because it felt like the shape of their thinking was exactly the, the right for the, the pitch brief. So I think it just, like Lindsay said, we're going to be able to, if we can, if we can play our cards right, connect our briefs and business problems to more interesting and varied talent, not just within Australia, but from anywhere around the world. And there's been a lot of commentary in the industry recently about the rise of independence and the rise of smaller agencies because they're just more nimble and flexible and can match themselves to clients much easier. What is your take on that? Do you think that independents are better suited to this period uh, for clients than agencies and holding groups are? I guess I would say um, independence has definitely helped us in terms of making the most of what has been, you know, a really, really, you know, unusual environment. And I think our industry is at its best and or at its worst in times of uncertainty or unpredictable or when, you know, things are thrown at it that are probably with a curveball. And I think it's not really about whether it's independence or network tone, but I think it's how you're able to respond to change, how you're able to respond to um, opportunities and, and move and and really understand how you can can you know work with brand brands and, and clients who are too trying to change everything, look at everything differently. You know, no no one can ever rest on their laurels. No one can just accept what was done yesterday as the way things should be done today. And I, and I think we're just as an independent probably able to shortcut a lot of those some of those processes. So there are you know less layers, less less hierarchy usually, um, um, less less mandated processes and red tape or things to to be approved. You know, it's it's a really lovely position to be in to be able to say no, um, to be able to say no that, we, that something is not um, aligned with our values or um, a piece of business that, it, that we don't believe, a brand that we don't believe behaves well and we don't want to work with. You know, it's a beautiful position to be able to say no, but it's also the way when you can say yes and the speed in which that you can mobilise mm. talent around an opportunity or a problem um, and really operate as a as a gang is, you know, the, I love that quote, you know, um, uh, gang up on the problem, Um not on each other. And I think in times like this, you know, COVID is a really great thing to gang up on and how you can organise that gang and that gang not be a traditional structure or traditional team that only works in a set way to be able to bust all that up um, and to be able to to move, I guess, be to be much more creative and in more creative ways. Because I think that's what clients now want and they, and they, they care less about how they're going to get there and more that they've got the strategic and creative firepower. So it doesn't matter if there's a thousand people around the world to be able to, to the scale to be able to deliver. I think that they're much more concerned with the value that creativity can bring to their brands and businesses. Yeah, I agree with all that. I, I sort of think there's three things. There's that the nimbleness, which Lindsay's talked about there, and that's removing the structure, the hierarchy, the dickheads, the egos, the politics, which can often creep into to, uh, other businesses. So there's, there's that whole piece, and I think clients love that. Um, there's the culture piece, and I think independence are best place to be able to manage and invest in culture. We employ the best talent when we find the talent, not because we've got a retainer that's missing a headcount. 
we don't have spreadsheets that define the business decisions that we make. We don't report to Paris and, and have to make numbers or stories up to comply with a, a global narrative. So there's the nimbleness, there's the culture piece, and there's, there's a whole piece on people, I think. And um, for me, we've created a business in Australia and we will in Melbourne and we will in America that is partner-led. And so our clients expect and want to see partners in their businesses, in the trenches with them, sweating about their business problems. And I look at all of our clients and I think one of the things that they, they find remarkable about us is that, that there's always at least two partners in the business super close to their business. Um, and I think they really appreciate that. That it's not a pitch team that gets wheeled in on day one and and they only see for lunch every quarter afterwards. These we know their business intimately and and so I think it's the recipe of those three things. We can move fast without structure and 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 be responsive. We can invest in our culture to create an environment that people thrive in, and we are invested um, in our clients' business at a at a partner level because and we pinch ourselves every day because. <laughs> Um, uh, we have no one to hide behind. There's no structure. There's no one we can blame. We get to share in our successes, but equally when there's times of crises or when things go wrong, we've only got ourselves to blame. And I think that, that, you know, it it means that we can spend, you know, the majority of our time, 80% of our time on our clients, working with our clients, working on the job, which is the job we all wanted to do it's why you set up your why you set up in the first place not to be managing case of managing spreadsheets or, or or managing um you know outside of the business so and i think probably you know in a, in a similar role in another in a, in a network turn agency you're probably spending 50 percent of your time on, on things that are not actually going to affect your clients businesses with so much change taking place this year in budgets and consumer behavior and ad spend Looking ahead to 2021, what changes do you think are in store for the creative industry? I think there's never been a greater appetite for creativity or um, a greater understanding of the role that creativity can play um, in creating value for businesses. Um, And so I think that there will be a new, I guess, a, a sort of appreciation of what's involved in creating environments for that creativity to thrive. And I, and I just think we will all, everyone will benefit from it. Um, I, I, you know, I think people will be more creative in the ways they're working, more creative in how they unearth insights and, you know, being more empathetic, being more human, bringing, um, bringing all those things that are much more the sort of, I guess, instinctive um, elements of, of creativity to the fore. And so I think we'll just get, we'll, we'll, I think everybody will. Um, the creative industry will only thrive because of it. Yeah, this is this is this is when creative creativity is at its best. And certainly in the last six years, we've tried to firmly position ourselves outside of the advertising box and um, more around how you use the power of creativity to answer business problems. And if ever there's a better time for agencies to punch out of advertising and to get closer to their clients to genuinely understand business problems and and put solutions forward that that might not be advertising but might be experience or product design or or service design this is it um and you know i I think some agencies will struggle with that 
and and the more progressive will um, certainly grow their remit and the and the types of relationships that they get to have with clients. And from our perspective, it's far more rewarding to be influencing what goes into the brief as it is to be making the ads um, out the other side. And that will just attract, I think, just different kinds of creativity into the industry and we'll, we'll all be richer for that more diverse talent because you'll be bringing even more different kinds of creative minds together, um, which is exciting. Kate and Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me on the Mumbrella Cast. Thanks so much for having us, Zoe. Thanks, Zoe. And that's it for this week. But before we go, sign up to Mumbrella Pro's free seven-day trial to access hundreds of hours of exclusive video content and audio analysis. Gain access to a comprehensive industry directory with over 2,000 contacts across agencies, media companies, and brands. And be sure to check out the brand new case studies for top insights on just what goes into creating award-winning work. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash pro for more information. That's it for this week, though. Thanks very much, everyone. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.